A few weeks ago, I did my own unscientific online survey, contacting around 20 people that I knew who were Facebook friends, etc. A wide range of people in that group, from fellow pastors, Sunday school teachers, a Christian author and theologian, a seminary professor, and folks in between, all of whom are more or less from the Reformed camp. And my question in the survey was this. If you had to choose one of the four Gospels as the most important, which one would you choose? Now, there were a few people who objected to the question outright, and I understand that, but, you know, at least for a survey, it was, I think, a legitimate question. So there were one or two who refused to answer, There were one or two who said, I would prefer not to answer, but if you're asking this, I will say that. And the result of the survey, again, my own unscientific survey, was that there were one or two who said the Gospel of Luke was the most important, one or two said Matthew, but over 95%, the overwhelming majority focused on the Gospel of John as the most important, if they had to choose. I happen to concur with that perspective, and as we begin a new study in this book, I hope to show you why, far beyond John 3.16, as important as that verse is, this gospel is profoundly significant. I'm not saying it outweighs the other three by any means. We have four gospels by God's providence that are all important, but in terms of God's divine word, this is what we have. So, as you have heard in the reading, I focused this morning on these verses, John 1, 35 to 51. My intention is through this evening, and I realize I'm sort of doing this in reverse fashion, but that's the way I I want to do it. This evening at our afternoon evening Bible study, I'm going to go back and start at the first verse of of chapter 1 and bring us up to about this point. But there are here, I think, four questions, as you can see from the title of my message, that confront us. But before I get to that, let me say that many years ago, the famous automaker Henry Ford purchased a large life insurance policy. And that fact was published in big, bold headlines in the several newspapers in the city of Detroit. The man was so well-known... And the large amount of the policy was so big, it made banner headlines back then. Now, it just so happened that one of Henry Ford's oldest friends was himself an insurance salesman. And he read that story. And so he went to see Henry Ford to find out if that story was true. And he just couldn't believe that his friend had not purchased that policy from him since he was an insurance salesman. Well, Henry Ford confirmed that the headlines in the newspapers were in fact true, and his friend asked him, why didn't you purchase that same policy for me, your old friend? To which Henry Ford replied, well, because you never asked me. You never asked me. In this latter part of John chapter 1, we learn how that Jesus' disciples came to follow him. But we also are confronted with, as I indicated, a series of questions that today we must answer. In the passage before us, we 
have seen or we read how John the Baptist, or baptizer as I prefer, he's been talking to his own disciples and understand that John the baptizer had his own following. He had a band of disciples that followed him around and he had been teaching them and among other things telling them that the Messiah would come, that they are living, we're living in an eschatological age, we're in the time of the end, he was telling them. And he meant by that the end of the time without the Messiah. And so when he sees Jesus, he says, here is the Lamb of God that I've been telling you about. And then in this text, we learn how two of John's own disciples decided to leave him and follow Jesus. Now, the text goes on to tell us that one of those two men was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. The other one is not named in the text, but many researchers and scholars and etc. believe that that unnamed second disciple was John the Apostle, the author of this gospel. And from that incident, we learn something about how Peter and Nathaniel, how they came to follow Jesus. And it is particularly noteworthy to see how it is that Nathaniel, which by the way is another name for Bartholomew, Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person, how he came specifically to be a disciple. If you look again at verses 45 through 50, excuse me, 43 through 50, you learn that Philip told him that the Messiah, the King, the Lord, was no less than Jesus from Nazareth. But now Nathaniel, being a plain-spoken sort of guy, he wondered out loud in that famous question, Are you kidding me? I'm paraphrasing. Are you kidding me? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Such an insignificant place as that? The Messiah? I guess if I was to put this in modern context, for us locally here in the Greenville County area, for those of you who've lived here for a while, you'll you'll pick up the meaning here. It would be like uh, somebody super famous. I don't know, the most famous person in the world, musician, uh, philosopher, educator, politician, government leader, religiously, whoever. I mean, the most, everybody on the planet knows who this person is, say. And you find out that that person was born in Honeypath, South Carolina. Or Cross Anchor. Or so-and-so, the most famous whatever in the world, is from Ware Shoals, South Carolina. Or even Conesty. You see, you get the idea. But being an honest man... Philip and Nathaniel go on to meet Jesus, and they notice the strange greeting that Nathaniel receives from the Lord. Look again at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or guile. Now, part of the mystery of that greeting has to do with the name Israel. Or Israelite. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit more in the afternoon study. But let me just say, I have read this passage many, many times, as I suppose some of you have. But it's only been recently, through further research and study, that I have come to understand, and I hope to share this with you, that not only is this term, behold, this Israelite in whom there's no deceit, particularly relevant in terms of the unity between the Old and New Covenants, but also in terms of now that the Messiah has come. This is an an age-changing event that directly impact the people 
who in Jesus' time were calling themselves Jews, but historically have come to be known as Israelites. Because with the coming of the Messiah, everything changes. And if you have yourself invested in a particular way of thinking and believing and teaching, and something that maybe you down the road figured would happen one day, but you didn't think it would happen in your time, and it happens, that can create quite a ripple. So I'll talk about that later this evening. I'll do my best to try to remember to record it for those of you who can't be here this evening or those listen by means of sermon audio. But when we tear today to talk about one other part of this greeting and what it means, we automatically, when we hear the term Israel, think of that political and geographic entity in the country in the Middle East today with that name. But in the Bible, Israel was first and foremost a person whose given name was Jacob. And as we know, he was the son of Isaac and Rebekah. And Jacob was a deceitful man, that is, until the Lord changed him. So you can see when Jesus uses this greeting, it was packed with meaning. Here is an Israelite. Here is a Jacobite. Here is someone connected to Jacob in whom there is no guile, no deceit. And then we read how Jesus knew Nathanael, saw Nathanael before he laid eyes on him. And that was enough to convince Nathanael. And he makes this tremendous confession of the Lord's deity and kingship there in chapter 1, verse 49. And then we read these startling words. Jesus answered him in verses 50 and 51. I'm reading it again. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Some of you hopefully have already picked up on the connection. But what does he, what does he even mean by that? Well, again, this is in keeping with the reference he's already made to that man Jacob, Jacob Israel. So he refers to the dream Jacob had as he was fleeing the wrath of his wicked brother Esau. We heard this you know, reading uh, earlier today, earlier this morning in the Old Testament reading. The dream of the ladder stretching from earth up to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending it. The implications of Jesus' words were unmistakable to those men who heard him say this. Jacob, the man God renamed Israel, dreamed of a ladder stretching up to heaven where God stood at the top. And now Jesus, the Christ, has come and he himself is the new Israel of God and that ladder, that bridge between heaven and earth. Now, friends, in the framework of these 17 verses, there are, again, to come back to it, four questions that present themselves to us that we must ask ourselves. These are questions that demand answers from us. Here is the first. Whom are we following? Whom are we following? You see there in verse 37 that when John's two disciples were pointed to Jesus, they followed him. And the word translated followed there implies following as a disciple. It means in, in its context and other contexts in the Greek language, it means to take up sides and join with one party over the other. Those two men had been followers of John the baptizer. Now they had become followers of Jesus. Now the idea of following someone as a disciple at Seems sort of strange to us, doesn't it? I mean, uh, when we think of Mr. or Mrs. Average South Carolinian, 
We generally do not picture them as followers of anybody. I mean, after all, we don't have a king or a queen in this country. We are independent-minded, self-sufficient individuals, and we don't need to follow anybody, do we? But the Word of God declares, as a matter of fact, we all are followers of somebody, no matter who we are. Now you, as you sit here this morning, maybe you never have thought of yourself as a, quote, follower, but you are nonetheless. No matter who you are today, you have someone or something that you have placed as the master of your life. It may be Christ Jesus the Lord. It may be the Quran. It may be Buddha. It may be the teachings of science. You know, like we've been told for the past three or four years, follow the science. That's an interesting choice of terms, isn't it? Remember the original context of the word. I'm leaving this and I'm going to go follow that. This is my master. That's what you've been told for the past three years. Forget everybody and everything else. You follow the science. The science is your master. Or it just may be that your main source of guidance is your own mind and your own ideas. Whatever it is and however you come to articulate it, there's something in your life which you view as the final ultimate authority over all matters of morality, right and wrong, good or evil. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, or another example. Several years ago, long before I was here at this church, I was involved in a counseling session with a couple who were preparing for marriage. And I asked each of them to tell me what for them, what for you, is the ultimate final authority as to what is right or wrong, good or evil, true or false, for you as a married couple. Well, one of the two told me that the final authority would be the couple themselves. Each married couple had to decide for themselves what was right or wrong for them as a husband and wife. And so for that couple, their minds, their ideas, their desires, those were the ultimate authority. Another way of saying that is that they were followers of the human mind. Now, of course, the biblical answer to that question is that God is the ultimate authority in marriage. His word, the Bible, is the perfect, infallible expression of his law regarding the institution of marriage. So whomever you follow and whatever you follow, that determines how you live your life. Now, there are, of course, many people who think that they maybe can follow a variety of authorities in their lives at any given moment. They can pick and choose the ones that suit them at any time. The Lord addressed that kind of approach to this. It's recorded in Matthew 6, 24, where he said, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And that's about as black and white as you can get. There's no gray area here, is there? There's no room for debate. There's none of this, uh, well, Jesus, that's your point of view. I've got my own. Thank you very much. No, you see, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. It's one way or the other. You either follow him and serve and obey his standard of living as given in the Bible alone, or you're going to be following someone or something else. Of course, in this multicultural, pluralistic, you've got your religion, I've got mine society we live in, It may not sound so bad that many people choose to follow some other path in life than the law word of God Almighty. But the Bible warns in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man. In other words, it's a path of life, a worldview that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. 
God, the creator of the world and of human life, has so designed us that in order to find true meaning in this life, in order for us to live in prosperity and truth, we must follow him and him alone. Now, those disciples of John the Baptizer, these men like Andrew and Peter, they knew that. And that is why they quit following John, so that they could go follow Jesus. So then the first question is, whom are we following? Then the second question becomes, what are we seeking? Those are the very words that Jesus himself addressed to those two disciples who left John to follow him. He doesn't ask them, who are you seeking, but what are you seeking? What is it that you want out of life? What is it in your life that drives you to do what you do? In, in the quiet moments, in the hours, maybe just before you fall asleep, or in the moments when you wake up in the morning, when you're in the pensive mood, the thoughtful mood, what is it that you really want out of life? What are the things that give your life meaning? I read about a survey, talking about surveys. This one's a good deal more scientific than the one I mentioned at the beginning. I think this was a psychiatrist physician who did this survey of 3,000 people. And they were asked to answer the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? And the result of that survey was quite shocking to the man who gave the survey. Because it was found that 94% of those people, of the 3,000, were simply enduring the present and just waiting for the future. They would describe this as waiting for something to happen. Waiting for the children to grow up and leave the home. Waiting for next year. Waiting for another time to take that dreamed about vacation. Just waiting for tomorrow. Seeking happiness and fulfillment in a future that never seemed to arrive. My friends... If God Almighty has so constructed us as human beings that we are by nature followers, he has also designed us to be natural-born seekers as well. The problem is we are also natural-born sinners. And that means we're born seeking everything in this life other than God and his truth. And That is why Jesus posed that question to Andrew and John. He wanted them to think very deeply about why they were following him. What is it that they were seeking? Indeed, what are we seeking in this life? Now, those men found what they were seeking. Or to be more biblically correct, the truth they were seeking found them. In the good providence of mercy of God, they were given the desire to follow the Lord and follow him they did. All right, that leads us then to the third question that demands an answer. And that is, what are we saying? What are we saying? In other words... Are we, in fact, telling others about this Jesus whom we have found? You notice what Andrew did? As soon as he found the Messiah, he went and he told somebody about it. We have found the Messiah. We found him. And in verse 45, the apostle Philip gets even more specific with what he's saying. He says that he found him whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. See, look, that's not just some irrelevant fact that's confined to the year A.D. 30. But we today, you know, somehow we want to remove Jesus from that context in so many different ways. And in so doing, some people have come to follow Jesus, a, 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 an example or image of Jesus that bears little or no resemblance to the Jesus that's given to us in the pages of the gospel. And there are many so-called Bible teachers and preachers out there 
who will tell you to follow Jesus so you can say, for example, have a better life. Yeah, I don't mind naming names. Joel Osteen is probably the best advocate of that perspective. He was certainly not the first, but he's the best known today. You know, that book that he wrote, uh, Your Best Life Now, that's a prime example of the, the manufacturing of a Jesus that doesn't bear any resemblance to the man we're reading about. And so if you recast this in this modern false uh, verbiage, uh, we would tell, you know, one of these guys would have gone up to, to uh, his brother or cousin and say, hey, we, we have found him who keeps us feeling good about ourselves. We found him who can heal our inner pain, who can miraculously provide us with money and cars and all the latest material things. Seldom, if ever, do these people who promote these ideas say anything about sin and the absolute necessity of a true, sincere, from the heart, repentance and turning away from sin and following Jesus. I mean, there are conceivably hundreds of thousands of people out there who have, quote, come to Jesus, but for the entirely wrong reasons. And certainly one of the main reasons for that is the false teachers who have not told the real reason for seeking and finding him, the real reasons why he came into this world, and how all of that ties in with what Moses and the prophets wrote about in the Older Testament. I suppose you could go to some of these megachurches that promote this stuff and you would never know anything about Jesus' connection uh, with Jacob and Israel and Moses and all the rest. They hardly ever talk about those things. You know, from the earliest days of the church, there have been those who have wanted to do away with Moses and the law and the prophets. We've talked about this before. They want no part of the Older Testament. Some have even argued, as we have said before, that, that the God of the Old Testament is a very different God than the God of the New Testament. And to hear some Christians talk, you would think they would be very pleased indeed if not another Bible was printed that contained the Older Testament. Oh, oh, maybe, um, you know, just give me the New Testament with the red letters and you can throw in the book of Psalms and they're happy. Well, friends, God's Word is complete. It is a total Word. It is perfect. God's Word cannot be broken. And the Bible to which we owe our allegiance and obedience contains Older and New Testaments and the Lord Jesus Christ is as much present in the one as He is the other. What we learn from both Testaments is that the Messiah King came to bring deliverance from sin. He came to save His people. And let me just stop here and say, this is another thing that we're going to find out as we go through this Gospel. This is another towering part of what's going on here in this Gospel, apart from John 3.16. And we'll see this tonight when we go back and read the first part of the chapter. He came to His own and His own received Him not. Who are His own? And when we say he came to save his people, who are his people? The Gospel of John is very, very concerned about defining who they are, who they were, and the dynamic of how Christ coming has changed all of that. But he came to save his people and to destroy the works of Satan and establish his rule and dominion over all the earth. All of that should be a part of the what that we are telling others about Jesus. And then fourthly, the final question that confronts us in these verses is whom are we telling? You know, uh, who are you following? What are you looking for? What are you saying? And then who are you telling? Now we've seen that Andrew, who did he go to? He, he told his brother. He went directly to Simon Peter. In verse 41, it says he found his brother Simon and told him. In other words, the first thing that he did after finding the Lord, is go to someone he knew. 
And I think with this we have a pattern, a paradigm example of New Testament evangelism. Now, I don't know, I, I think I've come across this term, and I don't know if it, it refers to this or not. I've never looked into it. But I guess you could call this friendship evangelism. Andrew went to someone he knew, someone with whom he had a relationship, and he told him about Jesus. Philip, likewise, went to Nathaniel, a friend, and told him. What we see in the Bible and what we know from the writings and church history, etc., is that by and large, that is how the kingdom message spread throughout the known world of that day, by one friend telling another, by one husband, one father telling his wife and family, one slave telling another. One relative sharing with another the good news of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So, have we ever talked with our friends and relatives about, about him and what he means to us? Do you think, if that sounds intimidating to you, or like it would be a useless exercise, ponder this question. Do you think in his wildest dreams that Andrew would have ever supposed that his own brother Simon would become the great apostle Peter? And who would have ever supposed that as wicked and evil a man as Saul of Tarsus was, a man who hated the very name of Christ Jesus and dedicated his whole life to snuffing out the church, who would have ever believed that he could become the greatest missionary and apostle of Christ the world had ever seen? See, you don't know how or when the Lord might use you or your testimony to accomplish His will in somebody's life. Perhaps a few of you know the name of Paul Tournier. He was a very famous Swiss physician and a dedicated Christian author of many insightful books, many helpful books. Uh, people have read his books for many years for guidance and consolation and things such as that. I don't know that I'd recommend him as a theologian, but well-respected Christian author of the mid to late 20th century. Well, after he had written his first book, Paul Tournier returned to the medical school in Switzerland where he had attended to visit his old professor, a man who was up in years and, and now retired. He'd gotten in touch with him, and the man said he could spend the afternoon with Paul Tournier. And Tournier took his first published book, and he read a significant portion of it to his old professor. And as he completed the reading, he looked up to find tears in the old professor's eyes. Oh, Paul, the professor told him, that's a wonderful book. Every Christian should be reading it. Now, Paul Tournier was quite surprised. He said to him, well, professor, I didn't know you were a Christian. When did you become one? His old, teacher, his old teacher's answer shocked him. His answer was, just now, as you read your book to me. Let us pray.